Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to Brexit Unspun, the Financial Times podcast where we debunk the political spin around Brexit. I'm Shona Jenkins. When Britain joined the European community in 1973, a profound but relatively unnoticed shift of power started to take place from Parliament and the government of the day to the judiciary. Broadly speaking, the UK Parliament became subject to European Union and European Court of Justice law as interpreted through the British courts. This was eventually to become a thorn in the side of those who resented the influence of Europe on UK policy and restoring the sovereignty of Parliament became one of the key slogans of the Brexiteers. But many failed to realise the extent to which European law has benefited UK citizens, and some now worry that without an overarching EU constitutional framework, these rights could be subject to the whim of government. Shona Jolly QC, barrister at Cloisters Chambers, who specialises in equality, human rights and employment law, came into the studio this week to talk to Barney Thompson, the FT's legal correspondent, about what this all means. Welcome, Shona. Thanks for coming in. Could we start by taking a look at the history of European human rights law and how it came to be applied in UK courts after we joined the EU? Well, firstly, it's really important to be clear about what you mean by European human rights law, because there are two parallel systems which have often been confused in the British debate. The first, of course, is our membership of the Council of Europe, which we're not leaving. And that requires us to be subject to the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. That court applies the European Convention of Human Rights, which is incorporated into our law by virtue of the Human Rights Act. And that's normally referred to as European human rights law. The parallel jurisdiction is that of the EU, which puts us under the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice in Luxembourg. That is the jurisdiction which we are seeking to leave, or it looks as though we're going to leave, as part of Brexit. And EU law does encompass human rights, fundamental rights, the right to equality, but it also encompasses a large swathe of different matters within its jurisdiction, competition law, environmental law, and other things. And An important aspect of those fundamental rights within EU law are socioeconomic rights. So, for example, workers' rights, the right to non-discrimination. And it also, of course, protects uh, fundamental rights through the Charter of Fundamental Rights itself. And I think it's really important to be clear about that distinction because many people got it muddled up in the referendum. So, for example, if you think about issues that have caused a lot of problems in the tabloid press over the years, the Abu Hamza case, which Theresa May was very bound up with, prisoners' voting rights, those were issues which were under the jurisdiction of Strasbourg. They were related to the European Convention of Human Rights. The European Court of Justice is often much drier, if you like. It doesn't tend to stir fever in the public imagination. That doesn't mean to say that its judgments are nevertheless much less important. So 
to go back to your question, perhaps rephrase it a little bit. How has EU law impacted on our human rights or our fundamental rights? I think really the only answer is that it's been a very considerable influence, both by way of driver and by way of guarantor for those rights. If you take, for example, the right to equal pay, it was commonly said in the referendum that the Equal Pay Act was a homegrown piece of legislation. And that showed, Lever said, that we didn't need Europe to protect women's rights. But at best, that really is a serious misrepresentation. It was partly introduced in the light of two previous attempts to join what was then the European communities. And perhaps more significantly, it's the EU itself, through the Court of Justice, which required us to introduce the hugely significant concept now of equal pay for work of equal value, which is why you see those mass claims over the country for dinner ladies within the NHS, healthcare assistance, etc. So that right, along with many others, is owed directly to the EU. And over time, equality has become enmeshed within the EU, not just as a principle to shore up the market or the integration of the market, but as a socio-economic goal in its own right. It forms one of the general principles of the EU. And of course, we see it in the Charter itself. The right to equality is a standalone right within the Charter of Fundamental Rights. So in short, the EU has really been a very significant platform for our rights. It was a floor, not a ceiling, so you could never fall below it. And I think it was particularly important for us in the United Kingdom because we are one of only three democracies in the world not to have a written constitution. And in the absence of that, the EU has really acted as a sort of constitutional guarantee. So how has all of this affected and influenced policymaking in the UK and what impact has it had on us as citizens? Well, I mean, I think there's a couple of really important points to make first up. It's been a two-way street. It's often been described here in the UK as a sort of top-down imposition by, you know, a set of unelected bureaucrats and a court that we know nothing about. But that's really not correct. Britain has used her seat at the table to influence developments on negotiations, on draft laws. British lawyers have referred cases and argued cases in the European court. They've influenced decision-making. They've influenced the shape of the jurisprudence. And British judges and avocat general in the Court of Justice, like the current avocat general Sharpson, they bring to bear a certain Anglo-Saxon way of framing legal questions, a certain pragmatism, a certain model. So it's been a two-way street. And second of all, of course, we have had to ensure that our law complies with EU law, both through the directives, both through the case law of the court. For example, the Equality Act 2010, which is our own piece of legislation here, and it's a solid and an advanced and an impressive piece of legislation, nevertheless is comprised not just of our own domestic developments but also those which are required by Europe. So for example provisions which Europe put in place to prevent sexual orientation discrimination in the workplace. That along with religion and belief discrimination in the workplace and age discrimination in the workplace were all outlawed by the EU. They now form part of our domestic law in the way for example that case law of the court has made its way into domestic law. For example carers of disabled people are now protected in a particular way by the Equality Act. That too is directly as a result of the jurisprudence of the court. So in those two ways, you can say that the EU has influenced policymaking because it's literally interwoven, not just into our laws themselves, but into the fabric of our lives. So can you give us some examples where EU law has come into conflict with the UK government of the day and how those issues were resolved? 
Well, I think an easy example straight off the top of my head is the Working Time Directive, because it has been historically very controversial with UK politicians, particularly in the Conservative Party, and it continues to be now. It was singled out for criticism again during the referendum, for yeah, example. Got always mentioned by Brexiters. And of course, the history of it is that the Conservative government at the time challenged it for nearly a decade. They tried to bring a challenge against the introduction of the Working Time Directive in the European Court of Justice. They were not successful. And so eventually, when it was introduced by the Labour government in the UK, and it gave British workers for the first time this series of protective statutory rights like holiday pay and rest breaks and a limit on working hours, it was nevertheless accompanied by this opt-out on working hours the 48-hour working week. And that had been previously negotiated but was brought in as part of a sort of compromise on how it was seen. And that, to this day, remains very controversial. I think it probably, at least aspects of it, remain at risk following Brexit. And then some other examples of where EU law has come into conflict, and there are a number of them, but it's interesting to think about some of the more subtle ways as well. So the Working Time Directive is a very obvious way, but some of the more subtle ways may, in fact shed some light on what might happen post-Brexit. So the coalition government did a review called the Beecroft Review shortly after it came into power and it was looking at reform of employment law, effectively another way of what they called the red tape challenge. And as a result of that review, a series of reform measures were put into place, which a lot of rights lawyers would consider were regressive. But one of the things that held the government back from making some of the reforms and were noted as obstacles to reform within that review was the fact that European law imposed some limits. It imposed the floor beneath which we couldn't fall. So those are the kind of things that you worry about. Now, I believe that one of our chief Brexiters, David Davis, himself had recourse to an EU law to overturn a policy that he himself opposed. Is that right? Well, you're absolutely right. And it's perhaps one of the great ironies of the way in which this government is digging its heels in over the Charter. It absolutely resents it. It's absolutely furious about the Lord's amendments on it. It absolutely doesn't want a Charter in play. But the fact is that David Davis himself relied on it alongside Labour MP Tom Watson when he thought that the government was acting in breach of data privacy. So he went to court to seek to disapply domestic legislation called the Data and Retention and Investigatory Powers Act 2014. And he wanted to rely on the Charter to disapply domestic legislation because of these fundamental rights which EU law provided. So I think that example shows you that this doesn't need to be a political matter. This is about the protection of rights. And that should concern you whichever side of the Leave Remain debate you're on. What, in your view, have been the benefits and the drawbacks of the UK being subject to an EU constitutional framework? Well, frankly, the advantages massively outweigh the disadvantages. The advantages are fundamentally that we have been provided with a quasi-constitutional system in the absence of one of our own. And my particular interest, equality law, has been particularly well served by this constitutional right And what a constitutional right does is it provides protection against times of economic hardship or social pressures or moral panic when minorities might be especially vulnerable to populist governments or very weak parliaments. And so, in some sense, the EU has provided us with that kind of framework. And the Charter 
although it's wildly unpopular here, has actually produced some really important results which impact on people's lives here. For example, in the case of Walker last year, we saw that it was relied upon to again disapply domestic law to give Mr Walker the right to pass on to his gay partner from a civil partnership his pension in the way that he would have been able to do with a heterosexual partner. So that gives you an example of the sort of substantive right to equality that we have by virtue of being in the EU and a signatory, for example, to the Charter. But you see other forms. Pregnancy discrimination, for example, has been really revolutionised by the case law of Luxembourg. So it was the Luxembourg court which determined that pregnancy discrimination constituted sex discrimination. Britain in the past has been in the forefront of equality and human rights law, and we have lawyers and judges and campaigners and people such as yourself, you know, vigorously pressing for these rights. So perhaps there's no reason to suspect a rollback after we leave the EU. But I know that you have some pretty sharp views on the way that the government is going about the process of withdrawal from the European Union and the potential effects it could have on our rights. Yes, I'm afraid I am pessimistic, although I don't necessarily think we'll see immediate steps to withdraw our rights protection, not least because I think Parliament's going to be backed up for a long time with legislation trying to deal with the mess of Brexit. Let me give you a few positives just to start on a good note before I hit the negatives. I think it is important to stress that we do have a really formidable piece of legislation in the Equality Act. It's not perfect and it would be helped if the government did in fact introduce provisions that they have deliberately not brought in that could advance the case of equality. But there doesn't appear to be any substantial political will, at least for large parts of that act, to be overturned at the moment. I think it's also important to remember that the Prime Minister has stressed, at least orally, her commitment to protecting rights after we leave. Although, of course, as a lawyer, I would say don't believe it unless you see it in black ink in the letter of the law. And I think there may be, looking for the silver lining, and I'm really having to look incredibly hard, there might be the odd area where we can go away and do better. So, for example, positive action quotas, for example, I think also we've probably got a pretty strong jurisprudence on equality and I think our judges are pretty well trained to be able to apply that. But there are a stream of reasons why I'm not optimistic. First, the language of Brexiters themselves. I mean, this was in large measure about deregulation. This was about what many Brexiters considered the burden of socioeconomic rights on employers. And so I fear it would be somewhat bizarre not to take them at their word. Second, frankly, I think that the government's approach to the Charter of Fundamental Rights has been completely inconsistent and absolutely disingenuous because the reasons that they've given for wanting to take it out at the point of exit simply don't stack up with their reasons for the withdrawal bill themselves. And also, they were sort of forced to produce a document to set out which rights we wouldn't lose because that was their claim. And of course, the document, even though that's not what it tries to do, does the exact opposite. It shows us that we will be losing rights. So I think the government's approach over the Charter is itself a reason for us to worry. As I've said before, I think that bad economic times put pressure on women, put pressure on minorities. We've seen, for example, the impact of austerity on disabled people. And I think it would be very easy to start a rollback of rights if, as is widely predicted, we suffer economically and we turn inwards on ourselves post-Brexit. For example, maternity rights in small workplaces. Then there are other actions of the government that we can look to and ask, why are they doing this? 
For example, there was an amendment, Amendment 30A in the Lords, which sought to introduce a non-regression clause into the withdrawal bill. I know this sounds really technical, but all it actually meant was asking for the government to agree in writing the promise they said that they would keep. In other words, we won't roll back on your rights. And the government simply refused to do it. There's more. We have no constitutional protection. We don't have a written constitution. And so far, for example, with the right to equality and the constitutionalisation of the right to equality, the government is not even engaging to be able to assure us that that's somewhere down the track. Then you look at this government and the coalition government's own actions in respect of the Equality Act. We see that they didn't bring in Section 1 on the socio-economic duty. It seems bizarre if Mrs May is looking to resolve burning injustices that she doesn't want to bring that in. They didn't bring in the measures on intersectional discrimination. What that means is if you're a black disabled woman, all those protected characteristics can be looked at in the round. They haven't done that. The government repealed the provisions in the Equality Act on third-party harassment. So if you're employed by someone and there's a regular client or somebody else who's harassing, they've repealed those provisions. That's a point that became particularly apparent to us in our investigation into the President's Club, for example. That's an excellent example. And it's one, I think, that will put a lot of pressure on the government eventually to turn back time, essentially, on that provision. But the fact that they repealed it, again, demonstrates, I think, that this isn't a government that we can necessarily trust with rights. And this doesn't have to be personal. This is about any government, all governments everywhere. That's why other countries have written constitutions. Another point I think we have to mention is the many people in this government who still detest the European Convention on Human Rights and still really oppose the Human Rights Act, it hardly fills you with a source of confidence that actually this is going to be a key measure for protection in a universe post-Brexit. A lot of people say, well, we've got the common law, you know, we don't need anything else, we've got the common law. And you have to ask, why are the British so exceptional that we don't need the safeguards in law that other countries have? And I think finally, I look at the government's own conduct in the way in which they've drawn up the withdrawal bill. And they have sought to include the most extraordinary powers for themselves. They've done it in a way that completely ignores any sense of consultation or any sense of proportionality. Are these the dreaded Henry VIII clauses? Amongst other things, but yes, the Henry VIII clauses will quite profoundly alter our constitutional structures. It beggars belief that the government thought they could get away with it, and they are still trying. So I think none of these measures or reasons give cause for confidence in a surge in our rights protection post-Brexit. Are there any other areas that are particularly vulnerable to a potential reduction in the rights of citizens? Look, I think it's really difficult to call right now. I think it would be a fool who would predict exactly what the future looks like. But there are some areas that I think we do need to worry about. I think a number of precarious workers' rights are vulnerable. So we've talked about the Working Time Directive, but also there are others, part-time workers, fixed-term workers. Importantly, I think we don't really know how EU citizens' rights are to be protected, and that's a huge swathe of the population that may find itself post-Windrush in an incredibly difficult position. I think it's also important to say that there isn't a standard level of protection across the whole of the United Kingdom. So Northern Ireland lags quite significantly behind other parts of the UK. And there are real concerns about what happens with the Good Friday Agreement and how that impacts on rights. So there are a whole swathe of areas that are still very unknown. And I think one of the most difficult things about this situation is that it's unprecedented. 
we're stepping deep into the unknown without any kind of safeguard or safety net to catch us. I mean, that's really quite astonishing because the amount of uncertainty that lies ahead is itself a threat to the rule of law. And that's why there are so many battles over the EU withdrawal bill. This isn't about blocking Brexit. This is about making sure that if we get there, when we get there, there is a system in place, a constitutional and legal system in place, that citizens know what their future looks like. And without that certainty, we are stepping, frankly, into the unknown. And that's an extraordinary position for a democracy to find itself, particularly in the absence of a codified constitution. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks to Shona Jolly and Barney Thompson, and thank you for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, and we hope you'll join us then. In the meantime, please review or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favourite podcast app. If you have a question or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes, you can also email us at brexitunspun, that's all one word, at ft.com.